Hey, Marty, do you ever read the Far Side cartoons by Gary Larson? Of course. I love the Far Side. Larson was a master at capturing interesting biological insights in a single visual. My favorite Larson cartoons, this image of lemmings with glazed over eyes running down a hill and jumping in the water. The cartoons this take on the now disproven idea that lemmings altruistically commit mass suicide to help regulate their populations. Yep, I know that cartoon, and there's one lemming with a life preserver around his waist and a sly look on his face. I love how Larson captures a really complex idea with the cartoon. It's that any individual in the population that chooses to act selfishly and not sacrifice itself, that little lemming should have a huge advantage. The tension between whether individuals should act selfishly or altruistically within social groups has fascinated and challenged evolutionary biologists since Darwin wrote The Origin of Species. In fact, Darwin recognized that individual worker bees were sterile, so their mothers have all the fitness benefits associated with reproducing. He suspected that this apparently altruistic behavior had something to do with the close relatedness of bees in the colony. But it wasn't until the 1960s when Bill Hamilton showed mathematically how altruistic behavior could increase within a population even if it was costly. By helping their relatives, altruistic individuals still pass on their genes to the next generation. We refer to this process as kin selection because it's selection for the evolution of traits that benefit relatives. The idea is closely linked to the concept of inclusive fitness where fitness is not how many offspring you produce, but how many offspring equivalents you produce. Remember, parents in sexual species only pass on half of their genes to their offspring, but they also pass on one quarter of their genes to their grandchildren. So two grandchildren are the offspring equivalent of one child, which is why J.B.S. Haldane famously joked that he would willingly die for two brothers or eight cousins. Hamilton's ideas were extremely influential, not only for explaining cooperative behavior, but also how social groups as a whole evolve. And while we might think of social groups as being a colony of bees, a troop of monkeys, or even a human society, a social group can really be thought of as any group where individuals with varying degrees of relatedness interact with each other. For example, we can think about the cells that make up a whole organism as a social group. Individual cells form tissues and organs which all interact with each other in highly cooperative ways. But it's not always cooperative. Think of a mutant cancer cell that acts selfishly and evades the body's mechanisms to suppress uncontrolled cell division. On the individual cell level, cancer cells benefit by making more copies of themselves. But the organismal or group level, this ultimately has a really negative effect. So, understanding how individual cells in a body, lemmings on the tundra, or even humans in complex societies become cooperative and resolve conflict are very fundamental problems in biology. Our guests today, Joan Strassman and David Queller from Washington University in St. Louis, have been at the forefront in shaping our thinking about cooperation and conflict in social groups. We talk with Joan and David about the history of kin selection and inclusive fitness and how they relate to the strength of selection acting on individuals and groups. For the past several decades, Joan and David have used the social amoeba Dictyostelium discoidium as a way to understand the dynamics of what happens when cells with different degrees of relatedness come together and form a multicellular slug. As single cells, these amoebae are solitary foragers on soil bacteria, but when the food runs out, thousands of cells gather together and cooperate to form a multicellular slug. The slug then moves toward the light and produces a fruiting body made up of a long, rigid stalk that supports other cells, which differentiate as spores, and those spores disperse for greener pastures. About 25% of the cells that form the stalk die, and thus sacrifice themselves for the group. So given a preference, no cell wants to end up in that stalk. If there was a way to cheat the other cells and instead end up producing spores, just don't become a stalk. 
In nature, these multicellular slugs are often made up of a single genetic clone. And as predicted by kin selection, cheating is rare because all cells are clones. In the lab, Joan and David have been able to manipulate the number of clones within a slug to test experimentally how changing genetic relatedness alters the balance of cooperation and conflict. They've shown directly that they can increase the frequency of cheating and even break down cooperation altogether by reducing the genetic relatedness within that group. We talk with Joan and David about some of the fascinating things they've discovered and how they transitioned to working with Dictostelium as a model system. Their studies have not only been valuable for testing major aspects of evolutionary theory, their work also has potentially important implications for the very origins of multicellularity. In addition to social amoebae, we also talk with Joan about the inspiration for her new book called Slow Birding and the importance of appreciating bird behavior. Wow, from kin selection to slime molds to watching bird behavior, we covered a lot of ground in this episode, so let's jump in. I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Marty Martin. And you're listening to Big Biology. Joan Strassman and David Queller, thanks so much for uh, joining us today on Big Biology. We're uh, really looking forward to talking to you about your research and your perspectives on the evolution of uh, cooperation, the levels of selection, and the implications for the evolution of organisms and social groups. But we also want to talk a little bit about uh, a new book that Jones published with a funny title, Slow Birding. <laughs> so looking forward to talking with that to, to you about that as well. So to begin, um, let's orient around the evolutionary problem of cooperation. We see striking examples of cooperative behavior within eusocial insects, cooperatively breeding birds, and of course within human societies. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why cooperation and things like altruistic behaviors uh, really challenge evolutionary biology and the, the kinds of theory that this type of uh, cooperation has inspired? Darwin was really one of the first to notice that his theory of natural selection depended on traits being passed down that were advantageous to the bearer. So the problem is, if you help someone else at a cost to yourself, if there's no cost to yourself, there's no problem. But if there's a cost to yourself, why should you help someone else? Won't that mean your genes will have, uh, Darwin didn't know about genes, but that you'll have fewer progeny? So it's really a, a cost of altruism. It's a cost of helping others at an expense to yourself. And this was thought to be a big problem for, for a long time. The simple answer, there's two simple answers, one simple answer is if you help relatives, you are passing on copies of your genes by helping individuals that are not exactly your own progeny, your own children. So that's, that's kind of an easy answer, but it has lots of really fascinating ramifications in terms of uh, what kind of help that is. So it's, it's true for social insects. It's true for a lot of cooperative breeding birds, certainly true for humans. So it's almost easy to talk about helping relatives. Helping non-relatives means you have to get something out of it. So then that 
caused a big increase in understanding exactly what the benefits of mutualisms are. And then another big interesting side is if you're pass, helping pass on genes, there can be conflicts within families, closer versus more distant relatives. Then another big area that, that came along just from these ideas is um, interest in how do you even figure out who you're related to? And, you know, if you think about it, how do we figure it out? It's kind of like if mom's giving him food, he's probably a relative. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's the, the broad picture. So I guess um, you didn't say his name, but one of the people that really helped us uh, mathematize at least these ideas was William Hamilton, Bill Hamilton. Um, can you tell us something about the concept of inclusive fitness and how that resolved the evolutionary problem of altruism? Inclusive fitness, the idea of inclusive fitness goes along with the idea of kin selection. He's, he's the person who came up with both, although he didn't coin the term kin selection and actually didn't like it at the beginning. Uh, but Bill Hamilton, let me mention first that Darwin amazingly kind of uh, foreshadowed the solution, even though he didn't know about genes. Uh, he didn't know that much about heredity, but he did realize that family members were similar and thought that, for example, the evolution of sterile workers in the social insects had to do with helping family members. So fast forward to the early 1960s, um, many people were not thinking about the problem of altruism those days. So, so one of Bill, Bill Hamilton's contributions was to bring it to the fore. Uh, but also to provide the, the solution of kin selection and inclusive fitness. So as Joan said, the idea of kin selection is that you, by helping your relatives, you are transmitting copies of your own genes. So if there's a gene for altruism in you that would be lost if you suffered a cost to your fitness, that can be restored, indeed overcompensated, if you help enough relatives uh, to pass on the gene. Right. Okay. So I didn't, what you just said there, David, I didn't know that, that Hamilton sort of revived this idea? I mean, it wasn't something that was all that exciting at the time or all that popular. What what was his inspiration to put all the effort into it? That I don't know. I, I can mention that a year or two before Hamilton published, a biologist named Wynne Edwards published a group uh, having to do with what we now call group selection. Uh, and, and so he was considering the problem of altruism as well and trying to solve it in a different way that at least initially wasn't very, wasn't very productive. And I don't know if that's what set Hamilton off. I'd never, I never heard him say that. Um, as far as I know, he kind of got interested in it through his own readings of, for example, Ronald Fisher, uh, one of the great population geneticists. Mm -hmm. Okay. So since we've brought up Wynne Edwards and, and the group selection, the, the moniker group selection, um, what is that? I mean, it, it has something to do with cooperation among non-relatives, Presumably, uh, presumably, but that's an that's an interesting slant on it. Some people view it that way, but in fact, so when when, Edward, when Edwards proposed the idea, he was thinking about things like animals regulating their population sizes. So he envisioned flocks of starlings coming together and flying around in big flocks and and giving vocalizations so that each of them could assess the population size and then decide if the population size is too big, I'm going to hold off on reproducing so we don't extinct ourselves. And that was kind of a novel argument. And he realized that if it was going to work, it, there had to be selection above the level of the individual, in a sense, because individuals that backed off on their own reproduction would do worse. Now, 
that actually doesn't work well if it's with non-relatives because non-relatives are a random selection of the population and genetically, if you back off on your reproduction, uh, costing your altruism gene and only help a random segment of the population, they have the altruism gene at random, uh, that doesn't change the frequency of the gene. So the problem, he raised the problem of altruism, he had a possible solution, but he didn't think much about the, the relatedness side, the fact that, uh, that groups would have to have heritability, in fact, that the group advantages would have to be heritable. And that's what comes when you have groups of relatives. To answer your question about group selection, when Wynne Edwards published his book on group selection back in the 1960s, it was very incomplete. It didn't consider the heritability that comes with groups of relatives and so forth. Over the years, a theory of group selection has developed kind of in parallel with kin selection. People view them as competitors, but they aren't really. They're, they're kind of different ways of slicing the way selection works. And as long as group selection considers the heritability of group effects, which usually comes from relatedness within groups, um, it can work. And it gives explanations which are, I think, essentially identical to kin selection explanations. But they're framed in different terminology, and it's caused a huge amount of uh, confusion. I'm trying to get my head around what you're saying. So group selection, historical group selection arguments, I guess, after Win Edwards, when they're framed in a particular way, sort of having kin, a version of kin selection at bottom, they end up being the same kind of thing. So there's some other group selection theory that is its own thing, but a lot of it is resonant with traditional kin selection thinking. I think the two theories are uh, if you frame them properly, are essentially identical. There, there's no other group selection. I mean, there are other things they call group selection, which are effectively individual selection, which we knew about all the, all the time. You do something which happens to be good for the group, but it's good for you too, and that's why it evolves. Huh. And this comes down to the heritability issue? I mean, that's that's what's core, because groups don't have something inheritable generally that... Right. If the groups are randomly formed, then traits are not going to be heritable, except to the extent which you express it yourself. And, the, and then, then it's individual mm -hmm. selection. Okay. Um, but I've, I've come to believe that, that sometimes thinking about the world in a group selection way can be a useful way to think of things. And that's a, that's a change in my thinking over the years. So I recently started reading uh, Samir Okasha's book on uh, multi-level selection. And I don't know if this touches on what you were saying, but he sort of seems to be presenting the case that the sort of dichotomy between group selection and kin selection, that really they are two sides of the same coin and um, and very compatible with one another. And, and a lot of the previous debate seemed to go away. Are you, have you, I'm, I'm assuming you're familiar with some of his work? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty consonant with my own views, uh, but not necessarily with other people. There are people on both the kin selection side and the group selection side who would not agree with that. Yeah, so Samir is going to join us uh, in a few weeks as a as a guest as well. So we're, we're this is a good segue into yeah, that should be of... interesting. <laughs> That's what my head starts spinning to think about any of this, and I haven't um, started in on, on Samir's book yet. But I think the concept of multi level selection, to the extent I'm familiar with it, is is really trying to draw explicit attention to where selection is acting. I mean, we've invoked can, we've invoked individual, we've invoked group. What's your feeling? about the sort of relative effects of selection at, at what level 
is it the strongest or is it the most consequential or is that just a silly question because multi-level selection is really the way to think about things? My take on that, it's almost a definitional one. The thing that we regard as an individual is the level at which selection is most potent. So we're multicellular individuals. We call ourselves individuals, but we're groups of cells. We originated from from single cells uh, dividing and, and producing groups of cells. We don't think of ourselves as groups, however. We think of ourselves as individuals because that's what selection has molded. It's a little bit less clear within the social insects, for example, but there's been a long tradition of thinking of social insect colonies as essentially individuals because they have been subject to such a long history of, I would say, kin selection, but you could say group selection, uh, that colonies are adapted in complex ways. Right. I want to use, get you to explain that word potent that you used just a minute ago. What, what do you mean by potent? Well, for selection to be potent, there has to be selection should be strong. There should be big advantages or disadvantages, and it should be heritable. It's sort of got those two components. And if either of those components is not there, then selection is going to be impotent if you don't have heritability or if you don't have selection on the trait. Right. And I think that to just to circle back to Win Edwards, that was one of the arguments that I remember when uh, G.C. Williams was first introduced to me that, you know, it's the, the rate of evolution, you know, sort of the potency of selection on individuals when the generation time is that much shorter than the age of a group. It's not just the heritability, but you have a, another issue that comes up there. So, Joan, you just said nah a minute ago with the, the multi-level question. What's your what's your perspective on? You know, I just feel like. I feel like there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people that like to have everything be more complicated. There's speakers that like to give talks that nobody can understand, and then they feel like that makes them more powerful. And there's people that like to be as simple as possible and and give the kind of talk that almost makes the listener feel like they've either discovered the same thing or already knew it, and real clarity and I think that the multi-level selection people are the obfuscators and that um, kin selection is easier to understand. It's clearer. You know, I just feel like uh, multi-level selection is, is the embarrassed um, counter to the fact of, to the failure of, of uh, what I call old-style group selection. Then they say multi-level selection, and it's so complicated, you don't really understand it, and that's their salvation. So, But, but Joan, I guess I, I w- I'm curious, though. I mean, there are, aren't there, I mean, there are limits, it seems like, to, to, to kin selection. So just as you were talking about earlier, there, you can have, like, groups of unrelated individuals that seemingly cooperate with one another. So in those cases, is it simply just mutualisms that lead to cooperation leading to higher fitness and you leave out the the relatedness component to it? That actually kind of goes back to the question we had earlier that I think I didn't answer completely about kin selection and inclusive fitness. So, so there, are, there are things that don't involve kin selection because you're not affecting relatives, many things. Um, but the concept of inclusive fitness was taking the initial concept of individual fitness and adding in the kin selection component. So inclusive fitness would cover those kinds of cases that you're talking about. 
both individual selection and possibly the ad, added component of kin selection. Okay, so that keeps it simple <laughs> without having to complicate it. It does, yeah. But the, but the other thing is to understand mutualism, it, it, you know, if they're not related, if they're different species, things like that, you have to understand the benefits to the individuals. And yeah, I don't know that if, if that's really a particular focus of multi-level selection, but... I mean, I'm working for my new book. I'm working on a chapter on mixed species flocks. And, you know, they're fascinating. In the tropics, they're really stable, and it'll be, you know, a pair of this species, a pair of that species. And as a group, they'll defend a territory. It's all individual selection. So in, the, in you know, some multi-species flocks, you have a bird, say like an ant shrike, who gives alarm calls and it's clear that they only give alarm calls if they have relatives in the group. But then there's all these other birds that forage near them and take advantage of the, of the alarm calls. So the ant shrikes don't have to have a benefit from the other birds. Just because you're together doesn't mean that, that natural selection is, is going on. One thing that seems to be coming back, um, the selection is strongest at the level of the individual. Maybe it has its most potency there, to use David's word. Um, why? Why is it the level of the individual that it's the strongest? And I ask that because Cam and I and our other co-host, Art Woods, have been enamored for the longest time that organisms are special kinds of things. And we have a different version of special maybe than, than, than you guys do, but you've been thinking about that a long time. Why is individual the, the locus of selection? Well, again, I think, it's, I think it's because we define individuals as those things which are agents in the world that are highly adapted. They're, they are the level where selection is potent. And uh, if it's, if it's a, a bacterium doing that, we define the bacterium as the unit of selection. If it's a multicellular organism that's doing that, we define that as an individual. And some of us even define social insect colonies uh, as individuals. What we view as an individual is a result of what has been crafted by natural selection over the years. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think what is an organism is a super important question, and it's one Dave and I have written on. Dave's had some brilliant ideas on this topic. And there, yet, you know, it's almost not a field of study, and there's all these people <laughs> just, you know, losing sleep over what is a species and all this stuff on speciation, and they're you know they're they're pushing the envelope by millimeters but that's what people study whereas whereas organismality is is wide open and that you know that's the target of natural selection there's there's lots of really interesting cases of you know obligate mutualisms uh lots of marine things uh the dictyostelium we work on things at the borders of what is an organism that 
you know, I mean, that's how science works, doesn't it? Everybody works on the same thing, and then there's yeah. these huge gaping holes that people don't go after. Well, it is a mystery. catching on, though. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it does feel like the tide is kind of turning, but do you have a feeling for why? I mean, it's so incredibly prominent. It is. It seems to be the defining thing, at least in terms of how a lot of us start in this field. We get excited by chimps on TV or, you know, sequoia trees or something like that. We get excited about organisms, and then we move off into other places, but... What's been the the reason for the sort of slow pursuit of a definition or some sort of consensus on what organisms are? Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe because it's largely self-evident or maybe because <laughs> people didn't have the theoretical framework for it. I mean, for us, the, the theoretical framework involves this social selection and conflict and cooperation among units. Yeah, it's puzzling. I mean, people have talked about what makes an organism... what. And more so what makes a living thing in terms of metabolism and thermodynamics and things like that. Uh, but the focus on how selection is crafted, those things has gone much more recently. Right. And I don't want to get too far off page. And Cam, I know you have a lot of questions too, but, but David, you used the word a second ago. I have to ask you to unpack. You said that organisms are agents in the world. We've, we've talked a ton about agency. Did you use that deliberately or what do you mean by agent? Uh, definitely not a myst in a mystical sense. I know that <laughs> things that have you know things that have an agenda, but that's that's just pushing the word, word along a bit farther. Um, things that act with with purpose in the world, although it's not true purpose for for most organisms, but it, they act as if they had purpose as a result of natural selection. And so your your writings about organismality have been focused on cooperation. Is there some reason that cooperation takes primacy? like over agency or apparent agency? Why, why is it that cooperation has been the cornerstone of most of your research and understanding, you know, this level of biological organization? Well, we're biologists who study cooperation. So maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's. So you, did you back into it that way or? or no, how? but I mean, agency to ask what an organism is, you have to kind of deconstruct it and look at, you know, if you want to study what's an organism, you're not going to start with whales, are you? You're going to start with something on the border. You're going to start with slime molds, or you're going to start with, with something where they're at the border of is it an organism or isn't it an organism? So what brings it together is cooperation, and the agency kind of goes without saying, because if you're cooperating... You're cooperating towards a goal, and that's the agency. And um, you can't have agency if different parts of you are trying to do different things. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so as far as cooperation, you know, we uh, went to grad school in the in the late '70s, early for him, early '80s, and uh, these were cooperation was one of the big questions. Um, of our time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, now that we're talking about organisms and organismality, um, I'm curious if you think that just thinking about cooperation and conflict and how it's resolved is sufficient to explain complex organisms. Like, can we get there just with that type of evolutionary theory or, or do we need more? Is there, are there other sort of emergent properties that come out of 
organ, you know, once you have this complex system. We're good and evolution does not need a rethink. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't think it does either, but I'm but I'm also wondering what other types of there there are there are certainly additional questions. I mean, or, organisms are the even a bacterium is an incredibly complex system of feedbacks and and feed forwards and so forth. And you know how that works is an important part of how organisms work. Um, so no, I don't th- I don't think we have a a lock on all questions about organisms when we talk about cooperation. But of course, that's what they're doing when, when these networks are evolving and so forth. They're evolving to be cooperative. Yeah. You mentioned the feed-forward loops. Uh, something specifically that I was interested in is like a, a process like homeostasis, where you the, the organism or the system becomes sort of self-regulating that way. Obviously, again, um, you know, systems that are not as good at maintaining homeostasis as others are going to be at a disadvantage. And so maybe that falls still within the, the general framework of, uh, you know, standard evolutionary theory. To me, the big change that's come in the last few decades is increased ability to understand mechanism. So it's not that the evolutionary theory needs change it's that we can get in such better detail at the mechanisms. We can get at the genomes. We can see what genes are active. We can see what they do. So a lot of the the new stuff, the new symposia I see at meetings and, and things like that have to do with mechanism. And I count genomics in mechanisms. Um, but the other really big new area that, you know, when I was first a grad student was not big at all, is conservation. I mean, we are trying to put what we know about organisms to um, slow down this great extinction. And I I think that 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 is, um, it's a huge concern. And there again, both theory and mechanisms um, become important. I agree. It's it's an interesting... um sort of line to walk, because on one hand, I I see like, if you, for example, embrace quantitative genetics and take a sort of a statistical view of, of evolutionary change, you don't really have to worry too much about the mechanism. You know, it kind of keeps things at a level where the mechanisms aren't necessarily that important. But then obviously, you know, if you, if you take a more molecular genetic uh, perspective on, on, patterns of evolution, then then the mechanisms become really, really, you know, central. And it seems like we're we're still kind of, you know, depending on your flavor of evolutionary biology, you either kind of embrace one side or the other. And I know that the, the, the gulf between the two is sort of getting smaller and smaller with each day. And I guess I, I you you mentioned like how that maybe has influenced your own work. Um You've also become, I think, a lot more molecular in your, in how you've approached your questions. Is that is that a sort of a fair assessment? Oh, to the extent we can, but we're not molecular biologists, so <laughs> um, we have moved in that direction. Certainly, of doing things that are more genetic and, and more molecular. But the first big thing we did together was using uh, molecular markers for looking at genetic relatedness. Um, I really am a believer in understanding the organism and in uh, 
knowing the natural history and working in the wild or on wild uh, clones whenever possible or, or organisms. Um, and I, I think a lot gets missed if people don't have sort of a really basic idea of the biology. And uh, I can tell you a story about that that kind of goes... Uh, against us, and that is uh, there was a time when we um, were going to start working on stingless bees, and we had worked on wasps for for many years. We knew wasps really well. We were working on a grant proposal on stingless bees, and we had a new grad student who had worked on stingless bees before, and we had her read our proposal for us, but at, at uh, one point, she, you know, she looked at us, and she said, Joan, Dave, you're talking about seeing, but these are stingless bees. They are completely in the dark. They are underground. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that's a pretty basic thing. So, and, and it didn't, you know, it didn't really impact what we wanted to do, but things were going to be about vibrations and smell and not about seeing. And so that's just a tiny example of the importance of really knowing your organism we did make a huge jump from wasps and bees to microbes, but we've kind of stuck with the one system for the last 25 years, and we do know our organisms. I just want to draw attention to a couple of things that you were saying there. It's, it's not, I think, only the organism that you're emphasizing is the organism in its context and its evolved context. So for these dictyostelium, I mean, presumably you could have grown those up generations ago and just kept them around in the lab and maybe they adapted to the lab. That's going to be a very different organism than you get in a field trip to your backyard for fresh new um, social amoebae. But, but before I go too much into the details, tell us about dictyostelium. Um, I was a graduate student uh, at Princeton and John Bonner was just down the hall from me. So I didn't really know very much about his work until I left. Unfortunately, um, he was just the friendliest guy in the world. So how, how did you start working on this organism and, and why is it so fascinating? Tell us about it. Why did we start working on it? There, there were a variety of reasons. Um, one was, you know, we still had questions to pursue in social insects, but they were, it, it felt a little bit as if we were doing variants of the same thing over and over again didn't want to continue doing that the rest of our careers. There was the appeal of being able to get a bit more mechanistic, even though we don't have that kind of training to go, go really deep that way. Um, because Dictyostelium, they were in the process of sequencing the genome back in the early 2000s. Uh, there were methods for transforming them and so forth. Another reason is that we had a graduate student who was casting around for a project. He was a graduate student from China and did not have much background in ecology and evolution. And that became more and more clear as things went on. And we thought, what, you know, what's a good lab project for this guy to do? And sort of settled on dictyostelium. So some other kind of social things are, um, I mean, Bonner wrote a popular book on, I think, culture and animals. And so basically every, every social insect person knew about dictyostelium. There was a point at which I just thought, boy, 
we've had all these ideas about looking at dictyostelium and who's the altruist in the stock. We are going to feel really silly if someone else does it when we had thought so hard about it. So I discovered there was a listserv that the, there was a dictyostelium community and there was a listserv. And so I started posting questions. I did not realize at the time that the entire community of hundreds of biologists all worked on one clone and it's, you know, a few descendants. But at that point, one person had a collection of wild clones, which he offered to give us. And I declined because, you know, we weren't really ready to do anything with them. But then he said he was headed to Australia on a sabbatical, so it was now, you know, in a year or more. So we got these clones, and they, they came in little vials of silica gel with spores in there. Anyway, so we started playing with them, and the first most basic experiment which we did was to simply see how uh, the two clones, if we mixed two clones together, how they were represented in the stock versus the spore. We were able to design microsatellite loci primers simply because the genome was sequenced. So the earlier ones I had had to, you know, make libraries and probe them and do all that stuff. Didn't have to do that. First paper came out really nicely and uh, published it in Nature. So we thought, oh, this is easy. (laughs) We should maybe back up for your listeners and explain what's what was so interesting about dictyostelium for us and for other social insect people? Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask um, if, uh, especially because Joan was mentioning the importance of, of natural history in the organism, if you could give a little bit of just a brief description of the of the natural history and why it is such a a great model for studying cooperation and conflict. Yeah. So, so uh, dictyostelium is an amoeba. And so for most of the time, they are single-celled and they have these little pseudopods and they crawl around looking for bacteria to, to engulf. But the interesting thing with respect to sociality happens when they starve. They eat up all, if, if they eat up all the bacteria in a local neighborhood, then they start signaling to each other. And this is one of the things that John Bonner studied. Uh, they secrete cyclic AMP and they attract each other into these, I'm going to say large mounds, but of course they're composed of microscopic organisms, uh, to produce a multicellular entity with perhaps 10,000 or 100,000 cells. And then this can uh, develop into a slug, which migrates along the, uh, up through the soil to get to the surface or along the soil surface to find a good area to produce a fruiting body, a multicellular fruiting body. And the fruiting body consists of a long stalk Uh, about 20% of the cells in the aggregation die to produce the stock, and the rest of the cells become spores at the top and get dispersed, hopefully by passing insects. So again, you've got got the problem of altruism there. Why do these 20% of cells die to produce the stock when that takes them, seems to take them out out of the natural selection game? So that whole slug, when it becomes the fruiting body, 20% is stock, 80% is spores? Roughly speaking, yeah. Okay, okay. So John Bonner had been studying this system for, for chemotaxis and also for development. It's a, it's a re- relatively simple developmental system. Uh, so one of the attractions that drew us to working on this organism, there's already a community of people working on it. And they were so friendly. And this is just, 
so important in science. I mean, they were the first meeting we went to was a couple of years after we started was in 2000. It was in Scotland. And um, there's one person in particular, Rich Kesson, who just was determined to help us in any way possible. He would he was associate dean of the med school at Columbia. He would take my phone calls at any time. <laughs> when we went for our first field collection, um, he came along. He stopped everything, came along. Uh, so so it just you know you hear lots of things about science and competitiveness and all of that, and that just just hasn't been our experience with the Dictyostelium. And they have they have annual meetings that are just one session. You know, at first we would go to the talks and we just wouldn't understand anything. <laughs> but we would just sit next to someone and they would just explain what was old, what was new, what was controversial, what might be of, of interest to us. And it's just... You know, this this is what makes science so much fun. Is just just these great people willing to take their time to 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 help. Yeah, it's just been really fun. There's certainly yeah. the competition element out there as well in science, and that's one of the things that makes it so interesting. It's it's like the social behavior we study. It's a mixture of cooperation and, and conflict. And humans and humans are so good at that, <laughs> trying to negotiate that. So Joan, Joan, tell us about the nature paper that you mentioned now that we have the natural history down. When you mix those two clones and we have this 2080 problem, what were the results? It's always good to kind of know what your options are. So we figured when we took populations of cells from the two clones and mixed them together and then got fruiting bodies, one possible outcome was that they wouldn't mix at all and each fruiting body would be clone A or clone B. Another option is that they mix and they're completely cooperative so that the percentage of clone A in the spores is the same as in the stock. And then, okay, that's kind of boring. Then the third option is that they mix and one clone cheats the other getting into spore and not stock. So the slug, before they become a fruiting body, they become a slug that moves towards light and they're visible. They're about the size of a grain of rice. And the front part becomes stock. So we took the front part and genotyped it and took the back part and genotyped it. And we found that for about half of them, one clone would cheat the other. And so one clone would be almost entirely in spores and the other would be more in stock. Was, was it always the same clone or would the identity of the clones change between the different replicates? If I recall correctly, we did in that study, we did 20 independent pairs, did we? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so that study wouldn't answer that question. Another study we did with maybe seven clones where we made a, you know, a hierarchy and we found, yes, there was a, a dominance hierarchy where some clones consistently beat the others. And that was replicated by another lab and they got a similar but not identical hierarchy. 
as we've moved on in the field, that's not an angle that we have particularly pursued. I mean, if there was one that always won, it would take over. And it seems like there's a lot of other things going on in the populations. And, you know, there's recognition genes, there's how they're distributed in nature. Usually in one spot, there's just going to be one clone. So they don't mix all that often, but they mix often enough. You know, we found what we call war genes that are only turned on when they're in chimera. Wow. Yeah, they're just, it's kind of like a uh, little wasp colony where instead of taking a year to develop, it takes three days. So we've really <laughs> been able to do an awful lot of different things. Much more efficient. In fact, we've done so much that we've kind of moved on from looking at the within species stuff and spent about, I don't know, 10 or so years looking at mutualisms with bacteria that we figured out. And now we're looking at uh, DICTI as a predator-prey system. So tell us more about where you find them in the field. You said that clones tend to occupy one region, but there's a conflict that does happen occasionally. Aren't, aren't these almost everywhere? I mean, they're incredibly common generally, right? So social amoebae, you will find anywhere if you pick up some soil. Dictyostelium discoidium has an odd distribution. It's found in the eastern U.S. We found it in St. Louis and Houston, but it's generally considered to be in east of the Mississippi. Um, the place it's been studied the most is uh, Mountain Lake Biological Station and the Smokies, and we've studied them a lot in those places. It's also found in Japan and the that coast of China, and has been found in India, I think. Uh, but there's lots of other species that are that are found elsewhere. The thing that makes Dictyostelium discoidium particularly amenable to study is that when they aggregate and form a slug, all of those cells are totipotent and they crawl along looking really like a regular slug. Whereas a lot of species, when they form that slug, they then make an anchor at the ground there and they start making a stalk right immediately from that point. So questions about commitment to becoming spore or, or stalk are different. But in, in asking about the, the sort of population biology and ecology the things of these things in the wild, that brings up an interesting point, which is that although we moved to working on dictyostelium because of its many advantages, especially in the lab, studying a microorganism in the field is really hard. Uh, you can't go out there and watch them the way you would do with, you know, hippopotamuses or something like that. And so the amount that we know about what happens in the field is, is pretty limited, and it's going to be hard to move forward in that way. I mean, one of the things we do know that Joan alluded to is we could go out in the field and find one of the places where fruiting bodies are produced or on deer feces. And so we could actually find individual fruiting bodies, bring them back to the lab and genotype them. And we found that most of them were clonal, consisting of a single clone, but some of them were chimeric. So we know there's some kind of population structure out there that enables them to interact with relatives most of the time. But 
but boy, there's a whole lot we don't know about what they're doing in the field. Yeah, when they're when they're chimeric, are they chimeric the same species, different populations, or are they chimeras of species too? Uh, what we found in the field was chimeric in the same species, but we have found in the lab that you can mix two different species. No, you're forgetting Chandra's work in Houston. Where did, did we find a mixture there? Where we had uh, D. discoidium was chimeric with uh, D. purpurium which is kind of like a human being chimeric with a fish. Um, (laughs) They've been separated for a lot of millions of years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so when the different species get together, are the dynamics of the, of the sort of life cycle all the same or do they do something fundamentally different? So what we found was that with D. discoidium and D. purpurium, the fruiting bodies were never intermediate phenotypically. They were either looked like purpurium. Which is purple. Yeah. Or they looked like discoidium. And when they when they looked like purpurium, there were very few discoidium cells in there. When they looked like discoidium, they could handle, you know, twenty or thirty percent of purpurium cells in there. Okay. So I'm really fascinated by discoidium. I work a lot on house sparrows, so organisms that are very broadly distributed have always been compelling to me. What do you, I mean, are, are there things with discoidium that you've studied that sort of make some sense of why it has, I mean, presumably a broad geographic distribution based on what you were saying a minute ago, but maybe I'm making a, a bad assumption. Is it that much more broadly distributed than the others and are a lot of them narrowly distributed? Is there some interplay in all of these things or am I making this up? So... Dictyostelium has been divided now into like five or six genera, and the genus with D. discoidium is sort of the big, aggressive, easy-to-find species, and I would say, if anything, D. discoidium is less common. It's probably in the middle of the range of between very common ones and rare ones. But if you are in northern forests... Northern cool forests like, you know, mountain lake and stuff, it's, it's pretty common. It's, it's not hard to find. Um, we've collected from, you know, Houston, St. Louis, all through, you know, Indiana, Illinois, and then up into the Northeast. We've got a collection of 700 clones. So that I'm super curious about the, that, that sort of like spatial scale over which you see the, this kind of genetic variation. Like you said that usually when you go to a given site, it's just one, it's often, it's just a single clone, but wait, by site, I mean, pinprick. (laughs) I don't mean site. So micro micro site. I mean, if you take if you take a straw and you collect about a fifth of a gram, you are likely to get three or four different clones of D. discoidium. Okay. Okay. So so let's yeah, yeah. just make we we clear did on we site. did have one study in which we discovered a really weird phenomenon in a cattle pasture in Texas. We collected uh, D. discoidium. And they were all identical across quite a large range. And we haven't seen that anywhere else. Huh. I think it has something to do with agricultural practices or something. But So I, I led that field trip. We had three new undergrads. And I like to take people in the field to start with. And, you know, we went under the fence. And they're Texans. And they're like, you just don't do that in Texas. <laughs> but 
<laughs> it was like so wide open. Stayed close to the fence. <laughs> we weren't that close to the fence, but we were in a very open area. And so we were doing a transect with our straws and everything and also collected from some cattle piles and stuff. And so there were there was a herd of cattle at the far end of the field as we were starting and as we were taking our, you know, 30 samples or so, at one point they started coming thundering towards <laughs> us and the, the undergrads were just all freaked out. But I looked and I saw there was like a feed barn nearby and they, I said, oh, they're going to turn and go to the feed and we've got to go back to the fence. I'm like, no, you don't have all your samples. <laughs> so we got back to the lab and we we cultured these things, and they were just teeming with D. discoidium. It was just, we had never seen anything like the numbers. I mean, yeah, just phenomenal. And then we went back a couple months later, and they were gone. And I'm guessing it was an interaction with the cattle and the ivermectin, which will kill D. discoidium also. Um, but then... Um, one of our grad students at the time, Owen Gilbert, took over that study, collected from a number of other local cattle pastures, and never found it again. Weird. Huh. In terms of them being successful, and I guess they are successful, uh, that kind of ties into our latest research effort, although our main question is not to answer why they're successful. It's relevant to it, though. Uh, we're starting to look at Dictia as a predator. And one of the things that, the, well, I mean, the thing that they do is go around and gobble up bacteria and fungi and things like that. And they are, I, I, I argue they're super generalists. They can eat a huge number of different bacterial species. And uh, if, if you sample bacterial species from the soil, which we've done, culture some out, Dickey can eat most of them. And given there might be 30,000 bacteria species in a gram of soil or something like that, that adds up to a lot of species. So we're curious into questions about how they do that, and, um, but presumably other other social media are doing that too. I don't, I don't, I suspect they're not special in that regard. Kind of back to the natural history. So you have these these amoeba that are hanging out. They end up depressing the local food resources gobbling everything up as predators. Um, presumably, some individuals are in better condition than others. And I think you've written about this. And so then they form the slug, and the slug starts to move, which must require some energy. <laughs> and I, you know, which, which the, the movement, I, I assume other people have studied this, but I found that part by itself so interesting because, you know, when you teach undergraduate zoology and you talk about like the um you know the mechanisms of locomotion and the coordination of muscle and you know various things you know here are these cells that just all of a sudden got together and now show coordinated movement that by itself is fairly <laughs> amazing but that they're also using up a bunch of energy and so the variation among individuals in energy spent um either during locomotion or the condition that they went into to form the slug, that does have some implications for who becomes the stock versus the, 
the fruiting body. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, uh, we've done studies where we've raised some individuals from a clone on a poor diet and others on a good diet, and the ones on a good diet are more likely to become spore. Which makes sense if there's a competitive element to it, as you would expect if they're sometimes chimeric. Totally, yeah. Well, you know, kind of back to Joan's point about, like, things getting complicated versus simple. I mean, I think that really speaks to also uh, some of the context dependency of, you know, like you can make the mathematical model, but, you know, when you go out into nature and you study the natural history, you're like, well, (laughs) you know, it depends on what condition the individual is in. And so that's something that needs to also be, you know, that, that kind of dependency needs to be part of the, um, the math, I guess, that underlies our, you know, thinking about under what conditions would we expect one clone to have an advantage or one to be able to cheat, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. They're all starving, of course. They've, they've run out of food, but some are starving more than others. <laughs> so, so that matters. And in fact, they're undergoing autophagy as they're, as, as they're developing, at, le- at least the stock cells. I don't, don't remember about spores are probably getting rid of some of their stuff, too. Um, so they're, they're, they're in trouble and they're, <laughs> they're working to get out of there. I never thought about it before. If they're starving and they get into these slugs, how do they ever do this happily anyway? I mean, they're so desperately hungry. Why aren't they eating each other? I, we haven't thought about that much. One answer would be you're, you're usually with your relatives. Um, another might be that may, maybe they don't have that capability. There is a species of Dictyostelium called Dictyostelium caviatum, which eats other amoebas, but it's only been found once uh, and never been found again. Uh, but it, it is it is a thing that is bi- biologically possible, but maybe not for these species. I don't know. But but the other thing is, if you're starving, and you're you've evolved to want to get out of the spot where you're starving, so becoming a fruiting body and making hardy spores that are sticky and will stick to a passing invertebrate is uh, evolutionarily yeah. a better strategy than just eating your neighbor, which only saves you about 10 minutes right right the the next generation versus a a full belly for a short period of time yeah one of the interesting questions that hasn't been answered i said you'd be eating your relatives and that wouldn't be good but um in fact when you're joining together with your relatives and you know at least the pre-stock cells are undergoing autophagy it would be possibly useful for those cells to digest themselves in order to feed the spores we don't know about that yet. I mean, it would require tracer studies or something like that. Um, but that, that's a possibility that you're, they're actually dying and allowing themselves to be cannibalized, essentially. Okay. So um, as promised, I'm going to zoom out a little bit and um, ask you whether this lifestyle, you said 100 species of Dictyostelium and the five genera now, um, is this lifestyle very common and we don't know about it? And I'm asking that to try to understand how you see Dictyostelium and the work that you've done to relate to the origins of multicellularity on Earth. I mean, how much we know about how many different paths by which that happened, I'm sure we don't know very much. But how do you view this taxon as a as a model organism that way? Is it is it that this approach is general, or or is this a one off kind of thing for Dictyostelium? There are other organisms that are similar in the, in, in the sense that they aggregate together and produce a fruiting body, um, sometimes, I think, with altruistic sacrifice. 
probably not too many independent cases of that. Depends upon what you mean by the life cycle. If you mean cells aggregating together to produce a multicellular body, I think there, there's a recent paper, and I, I didn't know the author, so I don't remember it, I'm sorry, um, surveying uh, instances of multicellularity, ag aggregative multicellularity, and came up with, if I remember, about 40 of them. Um, but they take different uh, different forms. They're not they're not all exactly like dictyostelium. Um, and they are perhaps overlooked because they occur in taxa that most people are not familiar with. And the organisms that we are familiar with are not aggregative multicellular. They, they're what we call clonal multicellular. They start from a single cell that divides into, into many genetically identical copies. So, um, so another thing I think is important is that Dictyostelium is a really old genus, and one way we can think of it is aggregation, which allows the opportunity for exploiters or cheaters to come in, does not result in such a um, opportunity for complexity. So in the you know billion years, animals have formed all these fancy different forms and the dictyostelia have only a few different cell types they're and they still just doing you know, their little thing you know they're they're not necessarily less successful than us um but they certainly haven't evolved the uh biological complexity of of uh animals so so as a model system i they could be a model for other organisms, but even if they weren't, and even if they never mixed in nature, suppose they were always clonal in nature, I still think they're an interesting model system because you can mix them in the lab and see what happens. Yeah. Dave, you said something that reminded me. I have to ask you, are you familiar with Mike Levin's BioBots? No. Okay, so he's a professor at Tufts. We've had him on the show twice. He has taken embryonic cells from frogs. I can't remember. It's a epithelial thing and some other stuff. And he's neural crest, neural crest. Yeah. He's, he's basically plopped these things together and created brand new forms of life that are quite agential. They're able to run resource gradients and solve puzzles and do all of these amazing things, even though they're just, you know, two almost randomly chosen forms of cell types that have been functionally put together. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So um, maybe that's for another time, but uh, it's it's super intriguing. Um, using that, that same evolutionary history, those cells in principle have always had a relationship among each other, but in this particular kind of functional relationship, it's a brand new organism. So I started off as an ornithologist. I'm still an ornithologist at heart. And um, a lot of my PhD research was spent in a, in a blind watching parental care of birds. And, um, you know, my roommate as a grad student was a plant molecular geneticist. And, um, you know, he would poke me and make fun of me all the time for saying like, you know, do they give PhDs for people that just like study and watch birds? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, you know, I, even though I had a bit of a inferiority complex about it, it, it was invaluable, I think, for me developing as a scientist and just uh, to be able to block everything out 
and just watch birds and and their behavior. And it got me thinking a lot about, you know, bigger topics like phenotypic plasticity, trade-offs between, you know, parents and offspring and parental care. And um, so uh, I just, uh, with that preface, wanted to say that I'm a, I'm a very big fan of the idea of slowing down and, and just watching birds and appreciating the, the details beyond just uh, checking a bird name off of, off of your list. And, and so I didn't know that, Joan, you were a, a bird watcher and, um, you know, I knew you, knew you from your research papers. And so um, how did you get into bird watching and, and what was the, what are the origins of the, the kind of the concept of, of slow birding? Well, so when scientists write books, they tend to be based on their research. And, and my book's not like that. My book is based on my teaching. So I've taught animal behavior since 1980 as a faculty member. I did lots of different things over the years. But at one point I decided what these students really need is something very free form that really lets them figure out what a hypothesis is and where it comes from. And, and so I would take the class out and show them the birds. And the first assignment was to spend an hour and a half watching each species, take notes, count whatever you can count, and then tell me how the birds are using time and space how it differs between the sexes, and what you want to know about for the next time. And they would just have to develop through the, through the semester coming up with, with things to look at. So my idea is that the principles of behavioral ecology, which have always been what we are most interested in, are really best taught with birds. You know, wasps? I don't think so. <laughs> Amoebas? Not really. <laughs> if you just ask someone to really watch the birds, it's really quite amazing. Anyway, so that's where slow birding was born. And I, I, you know, ever since I heard of the slow food movement in Italy and the idea of, you know, appreciating the local, I wanted to write this book. And, uh, you know, it took me about 20 years before I finally actually wrote it. You know, the idea is simply to encourage people to get out and watch the birds. And so that's why every chapter has exercises at the end of things that you might watch. Um, one of my phrases I'm most happy for the book was one of my colleagues said, hey, Joan's written a behavioral ecology textbook here. Because, <laughs> you know, I did try to cover all the various topics and things. And it's just 16 birds and some place stories. And uh, it was a lot of fun to write. Oh, that's wonderful. I haven't taught ornithology before, but uh, my colleague is, is offering it right now. I'll have to check and see if he's considered that. It's always been a frustration of mine to offer these canned lab sorts of classes because they're so removed from, you know, what the process of professional science is. So that's really great to hear. I mean, that kind of format is going to be a big payoff. And, you know, it's actually a lot easier than all the other labs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it's <laughs> not a hard up all those fruit flies and yeah. pouring all the agar plates and things. Yeah. yeah. 
Have you um, have you gotten any um, like personal feedback from anybody who has read the book and had a transformative experience? Like so I, I'm imagining, like the person who was into bird watching, but you know would see the bird and then check it off its list and then move on to the next thing. Who might, after reading the book, spend a little bit more time watch watch what the bird behavior is and um, have you have you had any like personal feedback like that? I almost get more from people who were too intimidated to become bird watchers who then realize, oh, if I can just watch it, you know, a cardinal and a house sparrow, maybe that's a good start. I don't think I've reformed any listers and in <laughs> some ways it's not really my purpose. It's just you know, I mean, I I read these bird books like candy, and there's so many of these guys that um, go on these, you know, year-long trips. And I, you know, I read one of these books, and I won't say who it was by, and I read the whole book. And I don't think in that book there was a single story about a bird. There was lots of stories about finding birds and about trucks falling off precipices and mud and mosquitoes and discomfort and finally seeing the bird. But there wasn't a single story of bird X does behavior Y and I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're writing the book on the mixed species flocks. Have you considered maybe together writing a book on organisms? Is that in the in the plans? The topic has come up. I don't think it's on the front burner. <laughs> Could happen one day. Uh, the, the book I'm writing now is Social Lives of Birds and Mixed Species Flocks is one chapter. I, I keep trying to entice him with uh, different ideas of of kinds of books to write. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. So thank you so much for the conversation. We've taken a bunch of your time. Um, I want to give you the chance, though, to add or say anything that we didn't prompt you with a question. Is there is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure we hit? You know, if you're talking about cooperation and conflict and uh, sort of the evolution of kin selection and things, it's really everywhere and it uh, can inform us in all kinds of ways. So one example that, that I like to talk about is um, something as personal and intimate as the human placenta is actually quite a battleground yeah. for, for resources. With, uh, and, and it's really only a battleground because the mother's interests and the father's interests are not the same because the mother and father are not necessarily going to be the parents of all of the babies the mother bears. So the there's just all kinds of really interesting conflict in the placenta with the, with the fetal genes causing the fetus to take more nutrients than the mother is selected to provide. And when these things go awry that, you know, it puts the baby in danger and understanding kin selection and conflict from an evolutionary point of view can help us understand and develop better treatments 
for mothers and babies. Yeah, yeah. We just talked about that in my evolutionary medicine class last week, preeclampsia and maternal fetal conflict. Yeah. The student's eyes got wide. Wow, I never thought <laughs> I never thought of that before. <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Sure. Yeah, thanks so much. We really do. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write to us at info at bigbiology.org. Also thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks to Dana Dela Cruz for her amazing social media effort, and Keating Shimeri produces the fantastic cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tieran Costello.